Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. When you're doing the work of creating the better world, you want to collaborate with good people. You want to collaborate with smart, thoughtful people, and it's so easy to call them in. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Cosmic. In today's episode, I'm interviewing Simone Soul. Simone is a coach and host of the Joyful Marketing Podcast, and today she is helping us throw out self-limiting beliefs in favor of playfulness and transparency. This is such a powerful message for nonprofits whose goal is to cultivate long-term trust-based relationships with donors. We can push back on old narratives not based on current realities. We talk a lot on this show about the self-fulfilling prophecies in marketing and fundraising and what we can do to uproot them. And that constant drive fundraisers feel to do good and be seen as good. Simone believes the harder we work to be viewed in this perfectionist martyrdom, the farther we get from authentic, resilient connection with our partners, whether it's in business, philanthropy, or life. Simone's candor gives us all permission to dig deeper in service of universal stories and nuance. As we talk about in this episode, it's through humanity-centered narratives and shared experience that we transcend no to live instead in a powerful place of connection and joy. This is going to be marketing advice like you've never heard it before, and I can't wait for you to meet Simone. So let's dive in. Welcome, everyone. I am thrilled to be here today with Simone Soul. Simone, welcome to What the Fundraising. Yay! So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I know that actually there are a lot of folks, because I reshare your content all the time, who follow me, who are familiar with your work. But why don't you give everyone just a little bit of your story and your journey to this conversation today? Mallory and I connected on Instagram, I think for the first time, because she saw that I actually come from the nonprofit world and I was a fundraiser and a grant writer. And she was like, oh my gosh, we (laughs) share that. So that is part of my story. I was born in California, spent my life divided between living in Korea, where my family's from and in the United States. And right now I live in Seoul, Korea, but I have a business and most of my clientele, most of my audience is in North America and Europe and all over the world. I'm the host of the Joyful Marketing Podcast and I teach marketing to life coaches through a program also called Joyful Marketing. I'm an author of a book called The Fearless Marketing Bible for Life Coaches. So I teach marketing to life coaches, like I said, but also a lot of people who aren't life coaches follow me and a lot of people who aren't even particularly interested in marketing follow me. And (laughs) I think it's because I talk about those things on the surface, but on a deeper level, I really speak to being human and loving yourself and showing up to the world with your imperfections and owning it and 
that's why I think a lot of people resonate with what I offer. I love that. And I feel your work speaks to so many different pieces of the lived experience of people doing marketing or fundraising or really anything that involves a level of vulnerability and visibility. And so you really talk about all of the things that surround that. I'm curious from your perspective or how you think about it, Why do you feel like those are important topics to be talking about when it comes to helping to enable folks to be their joyful marketing selves? As you were talking, I was reminded that let's say you have a job and you don't have a business, you don't have an interest in having a business, but you want to, for example, be promoted from one role to another role of leadership, or you want to take leadership in your community somehow, or let's say you even want to improve the quality of your marriage or something. So all of this is going to require us to step up into a different level of being where you see yourself with more power and you see yourself with greater capacity. So I brought up the marriage thing because I think everybody has like a set point for how loving and happy they can be. And that set point can change. But (laughs) For the longest time, I had a certain set point for how loving I was willing to be. And then when I realized I had a marriage coach and I was working with that coach on improving the quality of my marriage, not because it was bad, but I wanted it to be amazing, not just good. Mm. And so I realized that in order to go from good to an amazing marriage, I had to first become somebody who is capable of giving an amazing kind of love and receiving an amazing kind of love, which is very uncomfortable. (laughs) If you're just used to your experience of love being like a lot of drama, which I definitely was, I was like, wait, I don't understand. How do you just have love without drama? This is uncomfortable process of becoming somebody who can hold love and peace at the same time. It was very awkward. It was very uncomfortable. <laughs> so that's the kind of discomfort. And for example, when you want to be promoted at work, it's the same thing. You have to become somebody who can hold yourself at a different level of leadership, different level mm. of power, which sounds good on the surface. Like who doesn't love power? Who doesn't love leadership? Who doesn't love more pay, whatever. But it's actually pretty uncomfortable to your nervous system because it goes against the way you've been habitually mm. thinking. So creating these upgrades in your life. And what I specifically talk to in my business is about creating an upgrade in the way of your being where you can be a match for more clients, more influence, more money coming your way. So much of it is knowing that, yes, a lot of it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to have to learn how to think and feel in new ways. And you're going to have to step up into a new way of being. And you don't have to get a brain transplant to Mm. do that who you are, what you have, the assets you have, and the weaknesses and fears you have, none of it has to change. Like who you are is enough and we can work with what we have. This is where it is really similar to fundraising. And I want to talk a little bit about how you see the relationship between marketing and sales because fundraising is different. It's like fundraising and marketing get siloed the way that marketing and sales can get siloed in big companies. But good fundraising is marketing. We hear all the time, don't be a transactional fundraiser, but also the marketing's over here and the volunteer stuff is over here and this is over here and all you're left with are fundraising campaigns, but don't be transactional. Wait a second. That makes no sense. (laughs) It's all those other things that make the building of the relationship with your audience not transactional. They're in those other things. And so I think 
What's interesting though, is marketing. I don't come from a marketing background. And so I don't know what marketers feel like, but based on sort of the way you talk about it, it sounds like many people when they're marketing feel cringy the way that fundraisers feel when they're fundraising. And because they've been siloed, because the compartmentalization has been forced on them, but it doesn't feel natural to them because it shouldn't. And I think because they're holding a lot of limiting beliefs about their value in that space. And so when you were talking about the way you talk about everything else, for me, it really has always struck me the way you talk about it for both my own business, but also for fundraisers, because it continues to reinforce this point that you feel cringy, not because it is cringy. You feel cringy because of things you've been taught about it, other ways you've seen it done, things you might believe about yourself. And what does it look like to own this thing? Okay. I have so much love where you're going with this. And I think that's it. All you have to do to uncringe it is to de-silo it, almost uncompartmentalize it. So when marketing feels so aligned and authentic and delicious and nourishing to you as the marketer is when it comes organically from really high quality relationship, meaning you're hanging out with the kind of people that you would want to hang out with, people you actually, you enjoy their company you're talking to them and you're having a great time and they trust you and you trust them and you're just shooting the shit and having fun. And then they look up to you for the things that you know how to do well. And they think you can give them something useful that way, very organic, natural way transaction. Oh, Hey, can you help me with this? Oh, of course. Oh yeah. Great. That is what we are talking about. Mallory and I think when we talk about things not being compartmentalized. It's not like here's the relationship building and here's the fundraising. Mm. Here's the part where you give value and here's the part where you make offers and here's the part where you nail down your ideal customer avatar. Those are ways we dehumanize the process Mm. of both fundraising and marketing. And my biggest thing is we got to add the whole humanity back in. We can't have relationships without you being a human being first. So back in the days when I was grant writing, And I had excellent mentors, which I'm still so grateful for because they really taught me how to think and write like a marketer, actually, effective grant writer. And even if I'm writing to something that feels impersonal, like a federal grant or for a grant from a giant corporation or even an academic grant, which Mm -hmm. seems very impersonal, it feels like it should be very sterile and clinical. But even in those grants, my mentors taught me about the importance of building that human emotional connection with your reader first. Even if it's just writing something that they're going to read as opposed to you getting to sit down with them, open with a story they can relate to. Give them something to emotionally connect to. And what that's really doing is we're using on our end, our humanity to connect with their humanity. And that is what it's all about. And here's all the things that get in the way of humanity. Put yourself into this formulaic box of what's acceptable. And what gets in the way of humanity is these artificial departments, compartments that we make about what belongs where. One of my favorite books as of late about business, it's called The Anti-Racist Business Book. Oh, Trudy LeBron. Trudy LeBron. I love that book. Love Trudy. I've worked with her. And one of the first things that grabbed me from that book and punched me in the face when I read it is something like, I don't know if I'm quoting it exactly, but she said, business has to be personal. Usually we're taught the opposite. We're taught, hey, it's business. It's not personal. Mm. She says all business is personal. And if it's not personal, there's no business. And I was reading that on a plane one time and I felt like I'd been punched in the face on the plane. I, I was sitting there stunned. What does this mean? If it's not personal, it's not business. 
And I just sit and process it. I was like, am I doing everything wrong? So that Mm. got me thinking about, are there any ways I'm treating my clients like they're not full humans? How am I showing up transactionally? Am I treating my marketing? And I've always championed this, but like that question took me to grapple with this question at a much more deeper and confronting level. And so what if we apply that great quote by Trudy to fundraising and we ask, if it's not personal, it's not fundraising. How can you bring the humanity, that genuine, authentic human to human relationship building? You asked about how to not make it feel slimy. So I think Mm. that's it. We have to put Mm. all the pieces that we were taught were separate. We have to put it all back together again. Love that. And okay, because you're the queen of nuance, in my opinion, I can imagine fundraisers are listening to this and they're like, okay, Mallory, but I'm working really hard on not taking rejection so personally. So how do I make everything personal and lean into my full self and all the pieces in how I offer things and then manage how I feel and how hurt I feel when people say no? So I know this is something that you also think about and talk about in your work with coaches. So talk. I have an answer. (laughs) That's so interesting. So fundraisers feel like personally rejected when donors say no. Yes, because their work is so deeply personal. It feels like it's a rejection of their core values that someone thinks Mm -hmm. their values are not worthy of investment. Okay. So I think that's very understandable. And I also think, what if it didn't have to be so heavy? Meaning, Mm. yes, we obviously care about the causes that we represent a lot. They're very personal. Oftentimes they're very emotional. That's all very real. And also, what if instead of it being this, oh, it's about your core values. What if it was just more like a game? Because here's what I want to offer is that I deeply believe this. When people give, when people donate, it feels good to them. Why does anybody give? Because it makes them feel good. So you're inviting them into an opportunity to feel good. This wonderful experience of giving to this cause. And if somebody says no, they're just confused because they just don't know how much better they can feel (laughs) when they say yes. This is exactly how I teach marketing. And I think it's the same thing how you teach them. Mm. And when you look at it like that, it's a fun game where if somebody says no, it's just because they're like confused about what they really want, which is obviously to feel really good. They want to feel this high of giving and feeling all these wonderful emotions. Then you're like, oh, this strategy didn't work. Let me tell you this other story. And you can be a dog with a bone about it, but in a playful way, as opposed to it being this like very heavy thing. I think it becomes heavy when you turn it into a moral crusade, which it can feel like. I don't mean to deny that element. Of course, that is real. But also it can't all be that. There needs to be playfulness. There needs to be silliness. I think one of the organizations that I give to regularly, what I love about them is that they deal with very intense topics like refugees, stuff like that. But also whenever I go look at their social media, there's lightness, there's laughter. Mm -hmm. Obviously they're not in denial of what's happening, but it doesn't feel so damn heavy all the time. It makes me want to give more. I think it's a really good point. We take ourselves too seriously. And that doesn't mean that the work isn't serious work, but we take ourselves too seriously in a way that actually depletes us and exhausts us. And it's okay. Can both things be true? That the work is serious and we don't always have to be serious. Exactly. Here are the sort of the mantras that I want to offer. It's like, 
the only reason anybody ever gives is to feel good. And I'm just inviting them to feel good, play with it. Really want to challenge people to play with this idea of earn the feel good business, Mm. fundraisers especially. And I think once you get that, you're going to be probably able to connect with donors on an emotional level where they get to like tap into their own feel good too. And that's going to make them want to give more. Curious, as people move through their marketing journey and they start to get more playful or get more joyful or try things that maybe a few months before they would have never taken that risk and put something like that out there or said something so vulnerably, how does their identity start to shift? Like just in the play, aside from the outcomes, aside from the sales or anything like that, what do you notice about your clients as they start to adopt some of these ways of engaging with their people? Yeah, I think the biggest side benefit, which is actually not the side benefit, but it's the core benefit in my opinion, (laughs) is that they begin to see that the biggest asset that they have is not how professional and perfect they can present, but their flawed humanity and all the places that they thought were shameful and all the places where they thought they needed to hide, all the things that they thought made them look bad. So when you kind of release trying to uphold this image of perfect, a perfect person who is meticulously representing whatever brand you've got going on. Because when you're doing that and when you're holding very tightly to that, what you're communicating to the world is, this is where I think my value as a person lies in the maintenance of this carefully polished brand. So of course that's exhausting. And after a while you feel disconnected, you feel resentful, you get burnt out. So when people tend to come into my world, one of the first things they tend to experience is, all those facades crumbling down. (laughs) I like to think I seduce people into putting cracks in that and letting those fall apart a little bit by a little bit. Because then what you realize is that, oh, wait, I stopped trying to maintain this facade of me as this kind of person. Mm. And not only did I not die, not only did the sky not Mm. fall, that's the highest engagement I ever got. What? That's the thing that made seven people message me and say, oh my gosh, thank you so much. You saved my life for saying that today. That's the thing where people are connecting with me. That's where my value is, me just being me. Then that is so healing because they can feel like I can stop performing for once. And they play with the edges of, okay, so what if I drop that act too? What if I drop this pretense too? What Mm. if I just show up without my makeup one day? And I thought the whole world was going to fall apart, but actually one, nobody noticed. And somebody was like, you look so beautiful. So more and more the cracks happen. And then it's just a journey into realizing none of that stuff was necessary in the first place, because the greatest value I can offer the world is just being exactly who I am right now. That's so Mm. healing. That's spiritual. People keep being like, Simone, you're a spiritual teacher. I'm like, what? That's weird. (laughs) But I think that sort of process of unraveling all the shit around who you truly are, Mm. that work feels very spiritual. I totally agree. First Tea of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. 
It's saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. In your work, you talk a lot about how people feel into different things in their body and deal with their nervous system. So I'm curious, how does somebody know even in themselves when they are doing something that is truly aligned with what they do want to share with a level of vulnerability that they are comfortable with instead of searching for a raw moment for the likes? How did they get out of the outcome side of it? My answer might surprise you, but my real answer to that is who cares? Who cares if you are doing that? If you're like, okay, I'm going to say this vulnerable thing so I can get likes and people can connect with me. Is that wrong? I don't think so. I don't think so. As long as ultimately I think it feels okay for the person who shared. I guess what I worry Mm. about sometimes Mm. is that they share because they're trying to be more vulnerable, like somebody Mm -hmm. else who was maybe ready to be vulnerable there. And so they share something, then they get dragged for it. And because it didn't come from a place of deep desire or personal Mm. alignment, I don't mean wrong. It is what they really want. Yeah. What I'm really speaking to is when I say, who cares? What I'm really speaking to is I think a lot of people have a fear of getting it wrong, getting authenticity Mm. wrong, getting vulnerability wrong. Oh no, if I do this, is that performative? And that's what I say, who cares too, right? Mm. So what if you were a little performative? So what if you were just hustling for legs? You're human, who cares? Mm. And I always say, you want to be unattached from what comes back to you when you make offers and stuff. But so what if you feel attached sometimes? You're human. Mm. In my journey to become as unattached and generous as I feel today, I think I had to do a lot of trial and error of like, what if I do it like this? How does this feel? What if I do it like that? How does that feel? And I had to experience a lot of feeling very attached and needy in order to fail enough to be failing quotes, to become the person who can really be unattached. So if you're in that place where you're scared to be performative, I say, who cares? Be performative sometimes. Try out all the ways Mm -hmm. of playing with self-expression. There's no performativity jail. Nobody's going to lock you up and handcuff you. No, that's the first thing I want to say. Don't be perfectionist about it. Who cares? It's just words on the freaking internet, right? (laughs) I think it's such a good point. I think we obsess over every little thing and there is this need to play and to get it wrong. And I really actually appreciate what you said about the journey in fundraising, in coaching, There's a lot of chatter around raise a million dollars without blank or do this without Mm. blank. And I just was on a call with another consultant today. And I was like, I got to be honest, I'm now two years in getting to the point where I feel like I'm really able to take the spaciousness I wanted. I hustled my brains off for the Mm -hmm. last two years. And so if you're under the impression that you're going to leave your full-time gig, consulting and coaching in this sector is going to be cushy. I just want to be really clear that I have not found that to be true. And I just think there isn't a lot of honesty sometimes around all the, whether we call them failures or bumps and bruises we have to get or 
crying I had to do when I made an offer that didn't feel good, but I did it anyway because someone told me I should and it really bombed. And I knew inside I didn't want to do it. But that taught me like some of the most important lessons of my career. Exactly. What if authenticity was also that kind of journey? What if aligned vulnerability is also something you figure out by doing? I look at some stuff that I wrote years ago where I thought I was being very transparent, but looking back, I'm like cringing at my former self a little bit because there was a lot of posturing in my trying to be authentic, but also who cares? It's just words on the internet. It probably helped somebody. Maybe somebody cringed at it. At the end of the day, who cares? What I always say, which is something that one of my mentors taught me a long time ago, is what helps me so much is to always think of myself as building a body of work rather than trying to get it right each time. So if you think about an artist who builds a body of work in order to end up at one painting that's a masterpiece, there were countless sketches, studies, other paintings that weren't as good and just scribbles and ideas that got discarded and things that were attempted and failed. And that all built up, I literally imagine like a pile, like a physical pile. And on top of the pile could be this masterpiece, but that didn't come out of the vacuum. There's so many questions about authenticity and vulnerability. Is it okay if I talk about this? I want to talk about this, Mm. but I think my family's going to get mad. There's so Mm. much fear of getting it wrong. And what I would encourage you to do if you're interested in this work, dear listener, is if you're interested in this work, try taking unemotional risk. Do something that feels emotionally risky in a way that you can manage, not like it's going to traumatize you and see how it goes, see how it feels. And then if it feels safe to, play with that edge a little bit more. Do something that one day is going to result in a giant explosion. You're like, holy shit, how did that happen? And then learn from it. So let's be brave with our vulnerability. Let's be brave with our authenticity and be willing to do authenticity wrong. And I think that's something that I haven't heard other people say. (laughs) No, and I really love it because I think you're right. It is only sometimes in finding that edge and being like, oh no, it wasn't that. I thought maybe it was that, but I did it and it wasn't that. And then figuring it out and continuing to figure it out because also what was authentic to you perhaps even a few years ago doesn't feel that way now. I think of that for myself. I'm constantly changing and growing and evolving. And just because something doesn't feel good to me now that maybe did a few years ago, doesn't mean it wasn't authentic to me then. It just... All that means is that you grew and you learned. Yeah, exactly. And I think... Your point is well taken that it's just another thing we've boxed in to say, gotta be (laughs) this one thing, one way, this one perfect time. The other thing that's important for me to say about that is that we live in a really imperfect world where it's not safe for a lot of people to be who they are in ways that are very real and literal. And it's literally not safe for you to be in a lot of places if you're Jewish, if you're queer, if you're Black, if your body looks a certain way. And I think it can be an oppressive standard to tell everybody you have to be perfectly transparent and authentic and all the time Mm. when we live in a world with a lot of systemic inequity, violence, and oppression that makes transparency a question of safety genuinely for lots of people. So that doesn't mean Mm. we just give up in dismay and say, oh, the world is horrible. We can never be ourselves. But it means you do have compassion for yourself. I tell so many of my clients who are women or who were socialized as women, what lives in your body is a memory of literally being punished for revealing your body, if your ancestors, or revealing Mm. your mind. Like if you are a woman and you spoke your mind, went against 
the patriarchal grain, you literally could have been physically punished, put to death, had your children taken away, beaten, all of these things. And in the part of the world that my family is from, if you were a woman, you couldn't walk down a street by yourself without a male chaperone and you couldn't show your body unless you were a married woman, all these things. And so we're used to our minds and bodies having been controlled for millennia. And all of a sudden we're supposed to be perfect at being transparent. Mm. Think so. So again, (laughs) it's not to just feel depressed. I say this so that we have compassion for ourselves as we navigate this. It's an individual journey for all of us. I think that's such an important point. And I feel similarly about money. Women have been told forever that it's inappropriate to talk about money. They weren't allowed to talk about money. And then in the nonprofit sector in the US, 75% of the people who work in nonprofit are women identifying people and they are tasked with talking about money. And then they're so uncomfortable and they think it's because they're bad at it. They have a bad money mindset. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, actually, we have internalized all these things that we've been told for a very long time. And if we don't have that awareness, and this is how I felt as a fundraiser, I was like, oh, there's no way good fundraisers feel this uncomfortable fundraising. But actually... That's not true. And it was amazing. The first time I remember I spoke to a 30-year fundraiser, an amazing fundraiser, and she confided in me how nervous she still got every time she would walk in to a donor meeting. And I was like, why doesn't anybody talk about Uh, that? So I think just like having that awareness that every time we get a sensation that's uncomfortable, that we don't make it about us being wrong or bad. Exactly. I think asking can be inherently vulnerable. And I think my clients to imagine an ideal state of being, which they imagine that I'm in, where there's no vulnerability, I feel confident 100% of the time. But as long as we have desires and aspirations, and as long as we care, and as long as we are truly relating to other people in a way where we are emotionally invested in them, which is everything that I always do want to be, there's going to be emotional risk. And I think the more we resist that and make that wrong and turn it into a problem that we have to quote unquote Mm. overcome, I think the stickier it gets. And so, yeah, this feels vulnerable. Sometimes when I throw up, when I make an ask, I sometimes feel needy. I take it personally. Perfect. I'm human. Get on with our day. Oh no, I'm broken. I have to fix myself. Or I'm not ready. I'm not qualified. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how to do this. It's interesting. You were talking at the beginning about the marriage counseling or coaching. And I think about that in marriage too, what you were saying about receiving love and being able to give that level of love. And those are scary things. But having the awareness that like, yeah, it's scary to let yourself be that open to receiving because what that means is that there's always this risk then that you won't be given what you're now ready to receive. That's what it is to be open to those things. And there is just no opportunity for that receiving without the risk. Exactly. And when you anticipate the risk and you're not going to be surprised by it, I think that's when you can be the most brave, most powerful. Speaking of marriage, let me tell you a little story in the history of my marriage coaching. So I'm married right now and it's my second marriage. I've been divorced before. And one of my biggest fears that I had to work through entering my second marriage is what if one day I want to divorce my second husband too? And it was a giant fear looming over me because hello, it's a very rational fear. Mm -hmm. I entered into my first marriage thinking it was going to be forever too. And then one day I was like, nope, it's not forever. 
was like, what if I don't want to be with my husband anymore? It happened the first time and it felt so, so scary because I didn't want to get divorced again. And through getting marriage coaching, here's what I realized is that there will be days when I will feel like not being with this person anymore. There will be days when I just want out and I don't feel the love for him anymore. It all feels like a giant mistake. It's not a question of if, but if you're with somebody long enough, these days will happen. Mm. When they do, what are you going to make it mean? And I think if you aren't anticipating them, and if you think you walk up the aisle and you're like, yay, happily ever after till death do us part. And 10 years later, you're like, oh my God, I deeply hate this person. I never want to see their face again. And I want to be out of this marriage. You're going to be like, oh my God, it's a huge problem. Our marriage Mm. is falling apart. Whereas if you expect that something like this happened, not because there's something wrong with your marriage necessarily, but because it's two human beings dealing with each other, growing with each other, mm. learning how to love each other better and better all the time. There's going to be challenges that come up. So when those things, when those days happen, my thought about them now, they don't happen a lot. Even when I have those passing thoughts, what if it would be more exciting to be with somebody different? My brain presents me those thoughts because I'm human. Like I'm a red-blooded human person mm. who has all of the drama, but now I'm no longer freaked out by them because my thought about those thoughts is, Oh, of course I have these thoughts. That's what it means to be in a long-term relationship. doesn't mean I don't love him. It doesn't mean our relationship is in trouble. Mm. It just means there's drama in brains. And mm. that ironically gives me so much peace and stability and faith that our relationship's going to last because it can withstand all kinds of crazy thoughts in my brain. I don't make it mean anything about us. I just make it mean I'm human. I have a crazy, crazy brain. I love that. That is a really interesting concept. I've applied it to many things, not my marriage, but I probably should. I think the reality is like normalizing ebbs and flow is just something we're not really taught how to do. Or even normalizing crises. Yeah. Right? Because what happens when we don't normalize them? Do they not happen? No, they still happen. (laughs) And we're still fragile in the face of crises. What if we anticipate and normalize crises too? So I'm 36. My husband's 40. I hope to be married to him for another 60 years. And there's going to be crises. And so I'm mentally prepared when this shit's going to fall apart. And how am I going to navigate that? Or I'm sure you've heard this saying, lifelong marriage is like being married to six different people or something because people Mm -hmm. change and evolve so much. And so am I prepared to live with six different people? And how do we keep the love and the connection How do we keep actively engaged in creating that on purpose actively over and over as opposed Mm. to being, oh my gosh, we no longer feel the way we did on our wedding day. Oh no, there's a problem, Mm. right? So that's a resilient relationship. And I have no idea how we ended up in this topic, but it's the same thing (laughs) with, that's how you create resilience in the way that you do your job. It's how the way you create resilience in developing your expertise in whether you have a business or a fundraising job. Do you have that kind of long-term resilience, resourcefulness, sturdiness where you're in it through thick and thin? I love that both in terms of the how you're navigating the crisis in the moment, but also something I've been thinking about a lot lately when I've been helping people with their fundraising campaign or a letter is a question I'll ask them sometimes is, if you knew you were going to be fundraising from the same group of donors in five years, Mm. would you say this? So good. So tell me why you asked that question. Because I think when we aren't consciously thinking about the long-term relationship all the time and fundraisers have in the back of their head, low donor retention numbers, constant new acquisition of donors. And so I think like the long-term 
relationship gets deprioritized and people are making short-term communication wait, wait. decisions. I'm sorry. I have to clarify what you're saying. Are you saying that people use short-term strategies because they don't think that donors will be around long enough? Because that I, sounds like a total crazy self-fulfilling prophecy. Is it not? It's <laughs> crazy. I know. I'm doing a talk soon called Who's the Chicken and Who's the Egg? The self-fulfilling prophecies in fundraising because this really is a huge challenge. We take donor data and we internalize it and apply it to our decision-making. And we never look at how fundraiser behavior impacted that donor data in the first place. Donors give at end of year. All these donors give at end of year. Guess when they're asked to give? At the end of the year? Yes, our donors want to give at the end of the year. And I'm not saying people aren't generous during the holidays, but if you only ask your donors to give at the end of the year, it's It's not your donors who made that decision. It's like when I coach entrepreneurs and they're like, all anybody wants is my cheap offers and nobody wants my high-end offer. I'm like, how many times have you offered the high-end offer? They're like three times. And how many times have you offered the... Cheap offer, like 500 times. It's like, hello. I was on a coaching call recently where someone told me that one of their donors had never given a higher gift. And so I Mm. asked her what she had asked for that the person had said no to. And she said, oh, we haven't asked her for a specific other gift yet. We don't have to go into like very fancy law of attraction stuff to see it. If you don't ask, you're not going to get. And if you have assumptions and self-fulfilling prophecies, they're going to come true. (laughs) So let's check your beliefs and assumptions before you work yourself to the ground. Always. Exactly. And because some of these things are so ingrained in the way fundraising has been happening in this sector, to just simply say, would you say this to this group if you knew you had to come back to them in five years? For a lot of people, they're like, oh, no. Or I wouldn't say it exactly that way. That piece you said around perfectionism, that happens a lot in terms of, I think, promises that aren't false promises because it's not that the outcomes will never happen, but they're being told on a timeline that is unlikely. If you give, this is going to happen. Yes, maybe in 20 or 30 years, but we have not solved that problem in this country yet. So it's probably not going to be a result of this one campaign. And so if they aren't giving themselves enough credit to give themselves the space for nuance, which is something that I think you are so good at. And that probably undermines trust if they're leaving all the nuance out. They think they're being more persuasive, but I think it's a very subtle, unconscious thing. Yeah, total self-fulfilling prophecy. Your donors will rise or drop to your expectation of them. And this is what I tell my clients all the time. Your clients, your customers will rise to your expectation or drop to your expectation of them. Can you talk to me about what you just said? What I think you were saying before is people think that in order to be persuasive, they need to remove the nuance. They need to be Mm -hmm. as simple and straightforward as possible. But I think what you're saying is that's not true, that nuance is magic. And what does that do in terms of engaging people in your work? Okay, let me put it like this. You offer something like, okay, you're going to get rich really fast. You just have to follow these steps this is the hack that only rich people know and blah, 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 blah. And you're two weeks from making this amount of money. All of that could be true for some people. That could be very solid information, solid method. But when you 
present it like that, removing all nuance, removing all complexity, who you're going to attract is people who are desperate for Mm. that get rich quick scheme who are not interested. And by the way, those people are also the people who are not equipped or willing or have the capacity to put in greater depth of work or greater commitment. Somebody who's searching for a get rich quick scheme is not going to necessarily be interested in doing the hard work to develop a quality product and to develop high quality relationships. So then when you get all those people in there, the results are predictable because like that's who you got. If you're looking for a quick buck, it's all predictable. Whereas I have found that the approach that I described so far, I think it works if you are interested in hitting the market short term, making some money, getting out, and you're never going to make use of those relationships again because you don't have a need to build credibility. You don't have a need to build relationship. You don't have a need to build trust. If you're looking at it in a short-term way, you can do all of that and get away with it. It's totally fine. But if you are looking to play a longer game, when you are willing to bring in more complexity and say, you know what? Not everybody's going to get rich really quick because here are the factors. Here are the constraints. Here are all the different scenarios. That, especially nowadays online, there's so much hype. There's so much adrenaline in the air. Anybody, somebody actually dares to slow the F down and talk about things in a non-hypey, non-exaggerated, non-adrenaline pumped kind of way. I think it invites so much trust. It invites someone to plug into a frequency that is calmer. And when you offer up that frequency that is calmer, the kind of people you attract are people who see the value of doing the harder, longer term, higher return work. And therefore, when you attract those people and you work with people, of course, over time, you're going to have a higher caliber of, say, client results. So bottom line is it might feel scary at first, but trust people. Trust people to value the nuance with you. Trust people to be suspicious of the super hyped up stuff like Mm. you. And trust people to be intelligent and thoughtful. And when you trust people to be all those things, that's who you're going to attract, a caliber of people who are thoughtful, who appreciate the nuance. And guess what? You are going to have the best collaboration with those people. I think fundraising is also collaboration, right? Between the fundraiser and the donor. And marketing in my world is collaboration between the business person and the client or the consumer. We're all doing this to create a better world. Fundraisers fundraise to create a better world. And businesses, they offer quality products that consumers can benefit from so that we have a better world. And when you're doing the work of creating the better world, you want to collaborate with good people. You want to collaborate with smart, thoughtful people. And it's so easy to call them in. All you have to do is believe that they exist and speak to them as if they're intelligent, as if they're thoughtful, as if they appreciate the nuance, as if they want to do the hard work with you, the long-term work with you. When you assume it with them, you'll be really surprised and amazed how they show up. Ooh. Okay. What you just said is so important for fundraisers to hear. Because if you are offering a fundraising campaign or engagement that is all about the quick win, those are also the donors you're going to get. The ones who want the quick win, who are not in it for the nuance, who are not going to be in that long-term relationship with you, who are not going to take the highs and lows of solving the problem together with you because you didn't trust them either to tell them the full story about what's happening and to believe 
that they could go on the journey with you. And so just what you said, if you want to come in, you want to fundraise real quick, you want to get out, you're not going to email that same group again in five years. Okay, that's your choice. You're going to get the donor base that you fundraised for in the way that you showed up. I was smiling because I keep drawing analogies to relationships. That's my favorite thing. (laughs) What you just described is the equivalent of something I used to do, which is date people assuming they only want a short-term relationship. And so it's what I've got to offer is my charm and my good looks. And I'm going to be hot and cute and sexy and cool for you. And I'm not going to show you any of my humanity or my complexity Mm. or my intelligence because why would you be interested in that? And lo and behold, what did I get? (laughs) (laughs) Ditto. (laughs) Right? In the end, I learned my lesson. But across so many areas of life, it's true. You get what you think you deserve and you call in who you speak to. Okay. I want to be conscientious of your time. I am so grateful for this conversation today. And just for the model that you set around what's possible in terms of how we get to show up and everyone should go and follow her right now on Instagram. You're one of two people who I like go on Instagram and go to their profile to see what they've written about over the last few days, because it always really pushes me to think differently and gives me things to think about from a fundraising lens too. So I'm just really grateful for you and for the work that you do. I couldn't be more honored to receive that. And I am just so happy to know that you are doing this work because you are obviously so brilliant and you are just saying all the things that your people need to hear. Exactly. I know that I needed you 15 years ago when I was working in fundraising. So grateful for you. If you'd like to keep up with my work, you can follow me on Instagram at simone.grace.soul. That's spelled S-E-O-L. Please also do check out my podcast where I talk about a lot of these topics. My podcast is called Joyful Marketing. So you can just search for that wherever. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow, I'm going to be processing this episode for a long time because there are so many amazing takeaways. Here are some that jump out to me right now. Number one, one off campaigns attract one off donors. Fundraise for the partnerships you ideally want to grow. If you want long term, nuanced relationships, appeal with nuance. Number two, accepting that things will occasionally go sideways or backwards prepares you to weather through thick and thin. Number three, feeling a sensation of discomfort doesn't mean you have done anything wrong. Painful, unhealed feelings reside within our bodies. And number four, there is no performativity jail. So try different ways of being vulnerable and see what feels most authentic to you. Okay, there are so many more takeaways and tips inside this episode. So head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Simone and all of her amazing work. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week.
Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.